Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. You probably have some idea that your tax dollars are being used to fund experiments on animals. But is there a way for the general public to understand the scope of government-sponsored vivisection? Okay, so maybe sacrificing rodents or even bunnies may not bother you too much. But how about brutal, cruel experiments on huge numbers of beagles? Beagles like Snoopy. Anthony Bellotti is here with us today, and he is president and founder of White Coat Waste. Welcome, Anthony. And why don't we begin with you explaining what you mean by the phrase white coat waste? Quite simply, it's about wasteful spending in government. A white coat is an animal experimenter, and wasteful spending is the root of virtually all animal experiments that are happening right now. So we're not talking about the private sector. We're not talking about pharmaceuticals. We're not talking about cosmetic testing. We're not talking about product testing. That stuff's a drop in the bucket. Some of it's not even happening anymore, and a lot of it is that, and and that which is happening is dwarfed now by the true problem in the room, which is the growth, the virulent, rapid growth of wasteful government spending, taxpayer funding. You and me, forced Mm. to pay for this. We can't boycott it. We can't shop cruelty-free to put it out of business. We can't shop with our dollars. We can't avoid it. You're forced to pay for wasteful spending in government that funds taxpayer-funded animal experiments that we're talking about today. That's what the organization's all about. We don't do anything on private companies. We don't do anything on pharmaceuticals. We don't do anything on cosmetics. Just wasteful government spending that we're rooting out in Washington, D.C. at the root of the problem. Mm. Okay, so uh, you've used the term wasteful a few times. How do you define that? And uh, could, isn't it arguable what determines what is waste? Well, sure. The, I mean, if you're uh, a dog for the sector at the Department of Veterans Affairs and you're on the dole, yeah, to you it's not waste. But our position is that taxpayers shouldn't be forced to pay for this stuff. Mm-hmm. We don't think this is the proper avenue for, for if it's truly life-saving research. If it's truly life-saving research, we think you'd be able to find your own funding for it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not what's going on here. This is government waste at its finest. We're talking about experiments like uh, forcing dog, constipated dogs to take fleet enemas and making them vomit repeatedly yeah. at taxpayer expense, doing it on government campuses. Mm-hmm. We're talking about things like nicotine addiction in primates. Yeah. We're talking about things like testing recreational street drugs that are already illegal, again, on rhesus monkeys. If that's not government waste, I don't know what is. Anthony, so much of our system is relies, at least as it is now, on government grants. So you're uh, Mm -hmm. wanting to just uh, revamp the whole process. Sure. Absolutely. We are looking to radically revamp the way we do animal experiments in this country because we think that getting, if you really want to take a uh, fight the problem effectively of animal experiments, we have to revamp it radically. Because right now, this is a taxpayer-funded system. It's all started to change about the same year that I worked in an animal lab myself. Mm 20 years ago, summer of 1995, I was going to date myself, I was only about 17 years old, but that was my first experience with, with animal experiments and animal, animal advocacy and so forth. I saw it, I worked in an animal lab for about seven, eight weeks in between high school. I saw what they were doing with experiments, I didn't like it, I dedicated my life to fighting against it, and I learned about the taxpayer funding of the system many, many years later, 20 years later. I mean, I didn't pay taxes when I was a kid. I just saw abuse in the lab or or as a teenager. But 
we do want to radically revamp the way experiments are being done in this country because we don't think that it's largely been a, an effective solution so far to the way we've been fighting this problem. Yep. I mean, the problem got worse, and it got worse literally the same year. I worked in the lab in 1995. The government decided it was to become the market maker for animal experiments. It decided it was to increase its budget threefold. They tripled the budget with no spending controls whatsoever. Meanwhile, we were still doing things like only chasing private companies, pharmaceuticals, cosmetics. We didn't go after the root of this thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what this, this, this new initiative, our organization, our spending to death campaign is all about. We're trying to go at it from a different angle to fundamentally reform the way we do this. We don't think taxpayers, we just want to get it off the taxpayers' back. And by doing so, we think we can cut wasteful spending and save animals in one shot and that is, you're right. I mean, I think that is the fundamental transformation that this organization is all about. So uh, what were the main findings in, in your research that you are now reporting? So last week, the, the Washington Post, in a, in a significant expose, was the first big inside the Beltway, um, well, actually with national reach, yeah. um, international even now it's looking like. But the Washington Post story broke our investigative research on quite simply what they're doing on government campuses to dogs. Spending to Death is the first of its kind report that White Coat Waste Project put together through FOIA, through open records analysis, through government spending, follow the money kind of stuff. We put together what we think is the definitive paper trail on just what are they doing to dogs. And we're not even talking about what they're doing to dogs in college campuses. Mm -hmm which are also taxpayer-funded, of course. We're not talking about what they're doing to dogs at you know, the University of fill-in-the-blank around the block from you in yep. government basements. We're talking about what they're doing right here in Washington, D.C. We're talking about what they're doing to dogs at the Department of Veterans Affairs. We're talking about what they're doing to dogs at the NIH, the Pentagon, EPA, USDA. And our report found that about 1,183 dogs were used in government, abused in government alone in 2015, the last fiscal year. Five federal agencies, CDC, DOD, FDA, NIH, Veterans Affairs. But what was most interesting in our, in our finding, sure, we all know dog experiments are gruesome, and we know that we pay for government. But what was interesting to us was that the lack, the stunning, stunning lack of transparency. Yeah the lack of transparency on how they are spending that money. What exactly are they doing with it? Stunned even our researchers. I mean, only one of those Fed agencies we talked about, only the NIH itself actually tells us, they actually line item and tell us what they are spending on dog experiments. How much? For example, they spent $14,000 at one NIH lab for a single purchase of two-year-old beagles. They spent $6 million for forced heart attack experiments on dogs since 2011, which mixed breeds, they take snares, yeah. implant them on their coronary arteries, tighten them to induce heart attacks, kill the dogs, dissect them. Just right. grisly stuff. Talking about infection by flies, where they take capsules full of infected sand flies, strap them to the beagle's skin, cause months and months of ulcerative skin lesions, months at a time. Horrible stuff. Yes. I mean, we know this is bad stuff, but what was stunning was just 
how little information the government was actually disclosing to the folks like you and me, who were forced to underwrite all of it. Of the agencies, CDC, Pentagon, FDA, Veterans Affairs, only the NIH is actually giving, and it's not great information, but they're giving some on what they're doing, how they're spending the money. All the other ones, it's, it's almost a big black hole. It's so bad, the lack of transparency. So we took this report to Capitol Hill after the Washington Post broke the big story. We took the spending to death report to a bipartisan briefing uh, with Republican Congressman Ken Calvert, spending hawk, Democrat Dina Titus from Nevada, to lead the charge on simply asking the questions. This is a transparency play. This is an accountability question. What are you doing with the money? We need to know what we're spending. We need, to, we, we need an accounting report here. Mm-hmm. We need to know what's going on in government agencies, starting with the dogs, and just asking those fundamental questions. What are you doing with the money? You know, if you run a private business, I mean, you're expected, or, or any kind of business, nonprofit, anybody, you've you got to produce accounting. You've got to account for the money. That's what we're asking Congress to do here. Ask some questions. Start with some oversight. Let's get an audit. Let's get some accountability going here. What happened in that hearing? That was the kickoff of, mm-hmm. the, of the beginning of the campaign. Mm-hmm. What happened was we have been sending, uh, we've had, we have bipartisan, again, Republicans and Democrats for the first time. We've got them asking for questions to the agencies through things like Congressional Research Service, through places like the, uh, the GAO. We asked them to submit requests for information. Tell us what you tell us what tell us what um, you're spending the money on, or how many dogs were used, or how much did you spend on the dog. This was the the beginning of the process. Mm-hmm. That really kicked off on Capitol Hill last week, and now we are looking for more legislators to sign on and uh, ask the same again. Begin with the dogs and ask the same questions. Just use the dogs as a lightning rod and begin that process that way. So we're always interested in finding something for our listeners to do. So they could contact their representatives and ask them to get on board. Absolutely. And we have um, on a White Coat Waste Project, they can take action now. We, I mean, they absolutely can, should be contacting their, their congressman and senator mm-hmm. to, to sign on and get on board with this for asking these questions. Begin by talking. I mean, this is a political problem. Yeah. It, 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 this, if you want to deal with animal experiments in 2016 and 2017, it begins with Congress. I mean, that is who is appropriating and overseeing the money. So the listeners of the show absolutely need to contact their congressman. And what's the what's your website? Whitecoatwaste.org. Three words. Anthony Bellotti, congratulations. It's a important step because really we need to know what we have before we can argue effectively. So uh, wonderful. Absolutely. Wonderful thinking to really uh, start it this way or to continue the fight this way. And uh, we will uh, support you and report as we go along. We, we would love to stay involved and uh, keep all the listeners in, uh, informed on the progress of the campaign. And uh, we appreciate you having us on today. Get the word out. Thank you very much. Take care. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio. Today's Animals Today fun facts are about penguins. Specifically, the world's biggest penguin, or at least the fossilized remains of it, were recently discovered in Antarctica. 37 million years ago, a giant penguin, almost seven feet tall, inhabited the rocky shores and the seas. Scientists believe this huge aquatic bird would have been able to stay underwater 40 minutes or longer, allowing it to hunt deep sea fish. The second largest penguin ever discovered was merely five feet tall. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. 
For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. Did you know that one of the most common chronic conditions in cats is diabetes? Not long ago, I had a chance to speak with a dear veterinarian friend of mine, Dr. Douglas Coons, medical director of VCA Desert Animal Hospital in Palm Springs, California, to learn all about this condition. And here it is. Dr. Coons, thanks for joining us today. Oh, happy to be here, Lori. I know diabetes in cats is getting a lot more common than it used to be. Dr. Coons, can you tell us why? Well, the the big reason is uh, we're seeing a, an epidemic of obesity in cats, and the kind of diabetes that cats get is the type 2 diabetes, which is what happens to many of us uh, humans as we get older and uh, pack on a little bit of weight, and uh, it predisposes us to developing that kind of diabetes. It's not juvenile diabetes. That's very uncommon in cats. It's rare. Right. How is diabetes in cats usually diagnosed? Well, usually somebody notices their cat uh, is drinking a lot of water and all of a sudden the litter box is, uh, they're having to change it more often because there's so much moisture there. Uh, They may notice a little bit of weight loss, a scruffy hair coat with flaky skin, uh, but mainly the the increased water consumption and and increased urination are the, the reason that people most commonly bring the kitties to us. Is the onset of diabetes fairly acute or is it more gradual? You know, sometimes we'll see acute or rapid onset of diabetes when it's associated with uh, uh, pancreatitis, which is an inflammation of the pancreas, which is the organ that produces insulin. And, of course, insulin regulates your blood sugar. And and diabetes is defined as uh, inadequate insulin production or a delayed insulin production. When we eat a meal, normally that evokes a a response from the pancreas to secrete insulin, and if that doesn't happen, it causes problems. Dr. Coons, I read that diabetes is more common in male cats. Is that right? That's true. In fact, you know, an interesting thing, I, I did a little research, so I had all my facts at hand, that the prevalence of diabetes is 1 in 200 cats. That That's huge. Wow, that is huge. And yeah. do you think diabetes is more common than, say, 10 years ago, primarily because they're more indoor cats and thus less activity and exercise? That's correct, Lori. And and it's good that we have our cats inside because right, it's much, much safer for our kitties, but we've developed a generation of couch potatoes. Right. You know, they don't have the activity of uh, being outdoors, and, and of course that's for their protection. They're not getting hit by cars or they're not ending up a meal for some coyote. Uh, but also, from the other standpoint, it's better to keep those kitties inside because they're predators and our endangered species 
in the area can be affected by the predation from from feral cats particularly but, but by our own domestic cats too so we have to modify what we do with our kitties since we keep them indoors and we need to devise ways of exercise feathers toys yeah chasing a laser beam right they love that uh, but you need to spend some time with your kitty which pays benefits uh, uh, in many ways. Also, diet is important. Cats are true carnivores. Mm -hmm. Um, Their dogs are omnivores. They can eat uh, meat or or carbohydrates, vegetable source proteins, and do very well. But our cats really can't. Their livers act or lack the enzymes to properly metabolize carbohydrates. So our dry diets particularly are, are higher carbohydrate diets and can tend to predispose a cat to diabetes, whereas a canned diet has a Number one, a lower caloric density, but it also, uh, most of those are meat-based diets, and the cat really needs a meat-based diet. So proper diet is very important, but may not prevent the cat from developing diabetes. Well, if, if it helps to prevent weight gain, it'll help prevent the diabetes. But And we find a few of the cats that we diagnose with diabetes, just by correcting the diet, we correct the diabetes. We don't have to go to uh, uh, insulin shots, which are usually twice a day. So just as in humans, if the individual or the cat loses weight, the disease can be eliminated or at least be better controlled. And similarly, exercise is encouraged, again, to prevent, help control, or even eliminate the disease. Is that correct? Absolutely. Is it hard to administer insulin? No, it's really pretty easy. You know, uh, with with us, with uh, diabetes, monitoring is very important. And so a person who's diabetic may be checking their blood sugar multiple times during the day. With cats, we don't need to do that. We give very low doses of insulin, usually one unit twice a day, maybe two units at most. Uh, If we go over that, usually we have to look for complicating factors. And so usually we recommend a dose one unit twice a day, and once a month we'll check what's called a fructosamine level, which gives us more of a a global view of their blood sugar than just doing a blood sugar. Just one blood sugar really doesn't do a lot. And trying to do a glucose curve on a cat where we we check blood sugars every two hours over a 12-hour period, cats don't lend themselves. That, That can freak a cat out. And, and their blood sugar can go haywire just because of stress. So we do better with a fixed dose of insulin, checking the fructosamine once a month until we have it regulated, and then every three months. Mm-hmm. Doug, some people put medical alert tags on their cats to indicate they are diabetic. The same thing can be done on a microchip, right? I know one of the microchip companies, Home Again, uh, you can call in and post the history uh, associated with that microchip so that if your kitty's picked uh, gets out and gets picked up and is uh, scanned at the animal shelter and found to be diabetic, when they call for the information on the cat, they're not only given the, the uh, owner's name, but they're also given the medical history, such as diabetes. So, you know, it's it's another way, along with the medical alert, to alert people that you've got a kitty with a problem. Yeah. Dr. Coons, what happens to a cat if diabetes goes undiagnosed and untreated? Well, they become what is called ketoacidotic, 
their system develops too much acid and their liver fails and they they really get into trouble and can die. So, Dr. Coons, any change of behavior or weight loss, lethargy, litter box looks or smells differently or unusual should warrant a visit to your veterinarian right away, right? Absolutely, and particularly if you're seeing that increased water consumption and all of a sudden, uh, you know, you're needing to change that litter box more often. Yeah. That, that's, that's a red flag. Dr. Coons, we really appreciate you coming on Animals Today to educate us about feline diabetes. It's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. One very popular type of book we receive to review are novels written from the point of view of a pet. And it seems that recently dogs as narrators have inspired many authors, maybe too many. Frankly, lots of the stories seem similar to each other, and only a few really stand out. But one I might like to read would be from the perspective of a dog in the White House. Maybe such a book has been written, but... Wouldn't you like to get a dog's eye and nose view of the presidency from the inside? Well, we've been talking about presidential dogs around here because of our next guest today, who is an expert on presidential dogs. Her name is Kate Kelly, and she is a historian, the author of 30 books, and recently has been focusing on her website, America Comes Alive, and that's AmericaComesAlive.com. Welcome to the program, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. I am delighted to be here. Kate, I'm looking forward to hearing about the presidents and their dogs and maybe other pets they've had. But let me ask you first, has there been a novel written with the presidential dog as the narrator that you know of? Well, you know, the Bush family was, they were wonderful pet owners, and Millie, had her book that she wrote with Barbara, and Millie was the dog, of course, and they used the proceeds from that to go to a literacy program. And, of course, Barney always did the the Christmas webcam, where they would attach the camera to him at the holiday time, and you could still see these on YouTube. They're actually quite funny. <laughs> and he wanders <laughs> through the White House kind of showing you a dog's eye view of things. If you yeah. go back farther, um, one person, Warren Harding, was a newspaper man, and that's the only thing I can quite... He was, he was a newspaper man who loved dogs, and he gave a lot of press access to his dog, Laddie Boy, and would actually write to the press in the words of his dog. He would send in news, and one of the, the particular quotes I remember was the fact that uh, Laddie Boy felt as though 
no, he really wouldn't ever want to go to po- into politics because he had such an observation of all the glad-handing that went on at the White House that even though he had to do a lot of paw-shaking, he was not going to pursue it. That's so funny. You know, you're doing a thing called Dog Days of Summer on your website. Let, let's start really the beginning. Let's talk about old George Washington himself. Tell us about his dogs. He mainly had hunting dogs, and when I first started looking for information on him, I had a tip from a friend who has a standard poodle, and she said, I know from my breeding group that Washington had a poodle, and it was named Pilot. Well, I went out looking for this information, and I was not able to lock anything down until I got deeper into the research. What I had first found, and the dogs that are commonly available, you know, in referenced on the Internet, and then also those that are mentioned in Ron Chernow's, you know, very well-regarded biography of, of Washington were the hunting dogs. And they, you know, there was breeding among them and they were, you know, very specifically for different types of hunting. They were sight hunters and they were smell hunters and that sort of thing. So he obviously cared about them, but I think they lived very much the hunting life. In doing continued research, you know, for the summer, I came upon a woman who was a huge, maintains a huge poodle history website. And I wrote to her after I got the, I was working on another part of the project from my own interest. And I, at the end, I said, by the way, did George Washington have a poodle named Pilot? And she sent me documentation of places in his diary where he actually refers to the dog. The dogs at that time were called water dogs, which actually makes a lot of sense when you think about how closely a poodle and a Portuguese water dog are related in terms mm-hmm. of the hair, not the fur, and that sort of thing. And he, and Pilot was definitely used also as a hunting dog. And he was also, many of the mentions in the diary referred to how very busy um, Pilot was with the female dogs. So he must have left a lot of offspring. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's go on to Calvin Coolidge, who succeeded Harding. Um, who you mentioned earlier, he had a number of animals in addition to dogs. You figure in, in all of the world you can have pet people and you can have, you know, kind of pet people, and then you have totally non-pet people. Well, the Coolidge's were absolutely pet people, and they had dogs, they had birds, they had everything. But probably the story that will always stick in my mind was, and of course this shows such a different day in the 1920s, but someone had dropped off at the White House a live raccoon for Coolidge, the Coolidge family Thanksgiving dinner. Now, first of all, let's pause and think about dropping off a live animal for their dinner. But Mrs. Coolidge got wind of the fact that the raccoon had been dropped off, and she went to the kitchen and said, no, 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 this is going to be a pet. It was a female raccoon. They named her Rebecca. They built her a pen on the White House lawn where the pen surrounded a tree so that she could go up and down the tree. They even went so far as to bring her a friend so she didn't have to live in isolation but the friend quickly beat a fast exit and did not stay at the white house and down the line um rebecca was eventually donated to the washington zoo and and did not ever have to be thanksgiving dinner later on the coolidges were given 13 ducklings and they were p-e-k-i-n ducks they were the kind that, that that are popular in long island and they decided oh Ducklings. We would love to have ducklings. We have lots of extra bathrooms here at the White House. We'll raise them here. So they took one of the White House bathrooms and tried to dedicate it to being the place where they would raise these ducklings. But 13 ducklings became a 
a handful even for uh, a White House bathroom, and they ended up having to give them also to the Washington Zoo. So they always found a good home, but my goodness, the Coolidges were totally dedicated to trying to keep them there at the White House. Oh, I like the Coolidges, especially Mrs. Coolidge. <laughs> totally. <That's> so... <laughs> and it was interesting, too, because their, their procession of dogs, it sounds like, you know, they had been living in Massachusetts in a much more rural area, and some of the first dogs they came in, they had to take send back two family members in Massachusetts because it sounds like Washington lifestyle was en- there was enough more hubbub that if you weren't the kind of dog that was going to adapt, um, they had to. But they always had dogs, and they generally had more than one there. Now, Teddy Roosevelt was in the White House from 1901 to 1909, and he had a major thing for many types of animals as well. Which animals did he welcome in the White House? He had everything. He had horses, dogs, snakes, a macaw, a badger, cats, guinea pigs. And then at some point, some people dropped off a lion, a hyena, Mm. a wildcat, a coyote, five bears, two parrots, zebras, a barn owl, uh, lizards, rats. I mean, you name it, and they had it. But I think in a lot of cases, those were, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson also had a bear at the White House for a very brief time. I think sometimes those were brought in for show or for acknowledging the West or wherever they came from, and then they were probably you know, sent on to, to a good home rather than staying very long at the White House. But certainly the Roosevelts and the children did enjoy the horses, the dogs, the birds, the cats. Now, FDR had a Scottish terrier named Fala, a famous dog who often traveled with the president. Can you tell us about Fala? Fala sounds like he was just a delight to FDR. FDR would feed Fala before any president, uh, diplomatic dinner. The dinner would wait because FDR had to take care of his responsibilities to Fala. The other funny thing about Fala was that the Secret Service referred to him as the informer because he traveled always with the president and because he had to be walked periodically. If you were ever like in New York City and saw Fala, you would know that FDR was there. So there was no there was no secret about where FDR was. But the most famous story about Fala and travel had to do with the fact that uh, when FDR was running for yet again another term of presidency, the Republicans accused him of having left Fala on the Aleutian Islands where he had visited and a destroyer had been sent back to pick up follow and, and return him to the presidential party. In my research and in reading through that, I do not believe follow was ever left. There's, you know, no one ever specifically says that, but there's no documentation. There's no sign. And of course, follow was so beloved, I can't imagine that he would have ever been left behind. But, but the word was out, and you know how these campaign accusations go. And so finally, FDR made a very important speech to the Teamsters, and he came forward and said, you know, you can say anything you want about me, you know, my family is used to it, but my dog is another matter. He is Scotch, and he is terribly upset about the idea that you are saying that it cost, and he uses astronomical terms, that it, it cost taxpayers one, two, or $20 million to go back and pick him up on the Aleutian Islands, and he is appalled that people would think that of him, because, you know, the Scotch are so careful with their money, so... Say what you want about me, but don't say anything about my dog. (laughs) 
This this is really fun. Don't go away. We're learning so much about presidential dogs and other animals the president's had in our country. We're speaking to Kate Kelly. She's a historian. Don't go away. More with Kate Kelly right after this message. Did you know that there's a huge problem with pet overpopulation? There are so many unwanted dogs and cats that sadly millions of wonderful pets are euthanized every year in shelters because there's just nowhere for them to go. Consider that one female dog and her offspring can produce more than 50,000 puppies in just six years and that a female cat and her kittens can produce more than 400,000 cats in seven years. Now everybody loves a cute puppy or a playful kitten, but there simply are not enough people to care for all the animals. If you let your animal have a litter, even just one, then these kittens and puppies can go on to produce more offspring themselves. We can all help reduce this problem by spaying or neutering our animals animals as soon as we obtain them. That's what responsible pet owners do. Ask your veterinarian about the procedure. You'll also learn that spaying and neutering can allow your pet to live a longer, healthier life by reducing the chances of certain cancers. There are other benefits, too. Fixed animals are less likely to bite, fight, roam, or run away. Neutered cats are less likely to mark their territory. And because they do not go into heat cycles, they are less likely to cry continuously or to attract unwanted animals. So make sure to spay or neuter your pets right away and tell your friends and relatives about how we can all help make pet euthanasia a thing of the past. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. We're talking to historian Kay Kelly and learning all sorts of interesting, fun stuff about presidential dogs. Kay, how about Checkers, who was Nixon's dog? The Checkers speech is something that's very famous. And, and everybody's heard of the Checkers speech, but everybody kind of doesn't really know what the story was. And it actually... It, it is explainable because we so see these situations with the politics of today. It was in 1952 when Richard Nixon was on the ticket to be vice president with Dwight Eisenhower. The campaign laws at that time were very different, but um, Nixon did not come from a moneyed past, and he had been accepting a lot of various gifts from different interest sources. So once he had the vice presidential nomination, Different groups started saying, but he's going to be, you know, he should be taken off the ticket. He's going to have special interests because of all these gifts that he's receiving. And again, it wasn't illegal. There were not laws at this time. But he did need to step forward because the situation had become tense enough that, that there was an active movement to remove him from the Republican ticket. And that was when he gave the uh, checker speech. It was actually to the day eight years after the um, speech given by about Fala and the insult to him, so it was almost reminiscent of Roosevelt's speech, mm-hmm. that he came forward and said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be swayed by these gifts, and I am going to you know, walk the straight and narrow, and I'm going to be a very good vice presidential candidate, but the one thing I will not do is give back the dog that was given to my children, and they have named Checkers. So it was that's why it became known as the Checkers speech. It was really a, a speech about campaign funding and that sort of thing. But it's uh, you know Checkers was the dog that he moved you know into the vice presidential residential quarters with, and it was a it was a dog during that you know with them during that time. Right. So he says a little bit about a dog in a speech, so it gets labeled forever. Kate, did Checkers ever receive any affection from President Nixon? I really don't see Nixon getting down on the floor to give Checkers a belly rub. Probably not. And there's actually a story about an Irish setter that at some point they decided they needed to warm up the image of Nixon in the White House, and they got him a an Irish setter, you know, like the idea of bringing in a pet and making it look family-friendly and that sort of thing. And the Irish setter hated Nixon. And so the only way they could get a photograph of the dog in the Oval Office was if Nixon hid 
dog biscuits in his desk, and, and then they would bring the, the Irish setter in and try to make it look like a good photo opportunity. But you're probably <laughs> right, Nixon and, and animals. But yet most families in that day did have animals, and I'm sure the children loved the dog and that sort of thing. But, but Nixon was probably on the campaign trail a lot and probably wasn't such a, uh, an animal person. Now, there's a famous photograph of Lyndon Johnson holding up the ears of his beagle. What's the story behind that? And that was a really interesting story because I thought, you know, every picture, I mean, the Johnsons were animal people. And you can tell he loves those dogs. There's also a really famous one with him holding a dog and the dog, he and the dog are both obviously howling. I mean, he loved those animals. And what happened was he had a bunch of foreign relations experts at the White House. They'd taken a break from their meeting. They were walking the grounds of the White House, and the dogs, uh, him and her, were the two beagles. And they were walking the the grounds with the beagles, and Lyndon went and picked the dog up by his ears. Now, he didn't totally lift the dog. He lifted it up on its haunches. So it's, you know, again, thinking about full weight on ears wouldn't be a good thing, but full weight with also weight on the haunches makes it a little bit more palatable. But he he did it, and nobody who was with him at the time took note of it. However, there were photographers, and it ended up being a photograph in Life magazine. And the public went crazy. They were horrified (laughs) at his treatment of the dog. There was a great furor about it, and eventually the only solution was to apologize. And Lyndon did apologize for his treatment of the dog. He indicated he thought the dog didn't mind, and... There was one animal rights person who said this was a terrible thing, but there was another animal rights person who came forward and said, you know, in the South, hunting dogs are are frequently lifted in that way to check to see if they're in full voice. So there were two sides of that, but the bottom line was Johnson realized the only way out of it was to say he was sorry. (laughs) That's right. Now, George W. Bush, the younger Bush and the 43rd president, um, he had a dog named Barney you mentioned earlier. Uh Barney once bit a reporter, and I watched the YouTube on it, Kate, (laughs) and it looks like the reporter deserved to be bitten. Have you seen that? I actually did watch that because, yes, um, yeah, I think Barney was basically a good dog, and it must have been very—it must be very stressful to be a White House dog with the exposure to all the people. And you know, we all know when when you're with a child, you teach them to let the dog smell you first, and everything. You don't ever reach out suddenly. And and yes, I mean, I'm sorry for the reporter getting bitten, but I think Barney probably was not a biter type of dog. And finally, to the Obama's dog named Bo. I was very disappointed, Kate, and spoke about this earlier before you came on the air. In my view, Bo was really not a rescue dog, although he was labeled as one. But tell us about Bo. I totally agree. I mean, in the spirit, I've got two rescue dogs, and and my dogs, you know, came from shelters and, you know, had bad lives before that. So the true nature of a rescue dog is not Bo. On the other hand, when you think about how spirited a Portuguese water dog is, they are the kind of dog that requires a specific kind of family owner that they need to be disciplined. They, you know, somebody needs to be on top of the behavior and that sort of thing. And it sounds like what happened with Bo was he, he was placed, you know, he was, he was from a, a breeder. He was placed with one family, and that family felt they couldn't handle Bo. So Bo came back to the breeder. Kennedy, it, it was a breeder that Ted Kennedy used for his dog, so he had a trainer work specifically with Bo, and then Bo came to the White House 
at the age of six months. So you are absolutely right. I don't really think it's the definition of, of what most of us think of as a rescue dog. The kids wanted a dog and they needed hypoallergenic. You know, they had to do what they had to do. So I, I'll give them a pass on not necessarily doing absolutely the right thing on that one. Okay. I'm not going to give them a pass, but that's okay. Right. Um, Kate Kelly, you are fantastic. She's a historian. She's the author of 30 books. Thanks so much for being on the show, Kate. It was an absolute pleasure. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.